we're in the book of James. Everybody's out, woo, yeah. Everybody either love it or hate it, I guess, because uh, uh, that's the reaction I get. Finished Mark. Oh, I'm getting a text right now. They're going to work at Triple H. Thank you. Uh, text me right now. I'll just interrupt my message and shout out your name. Thanks, Jeremy. Now the cat's out of the bag. People know they can text me while I'm talking. Don't do it. We're in the book of James chapter. This is going to be a tough morning. James chapter one, verse one is our text. Did he really mean that? Yes, he did. Just we'll go faster after this week, but one verse. The topic, James introduces himself to his audience as a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. The title of our message, the name is bondservant. James Bondservant. Thank you. Top five for sure. Yeah, that's, that's a top five. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much. It is a privilege to be here this morning. So many other places we could be that are not as comfortable, that are not as cozy, that are not as free. And yet you've allowed us by your grace to be here in this place to sit and listen to the word of God taught hopefully in the company of the Holy Spirit, bringing it to our hearts, reviving us and refreshing us. Please do all the work that you desire to do and more. We ask it in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. Have you played Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon? Who's played the Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon? What is, okay, I I won't say it. It, do Do you know what it is, Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon? Who knows? You know what it is? It's a game based on the six degree of separation concept, which assumes that any two people on the earth can be connected by six or fewer acquaintances. And the the Kevin Bacon version, movie buffs challenge each other to find the shortest path between an arbitrary actor and Kevin Bacon. I can connect myself to Kevin Bacon with three degrees of separation because my friend Marty has met actor and director John Favreau, who was in Iron Man 3 with Kendrick Cross, who was in Death Sentence with Kevin Bacon. I re- Gene reminded me that he's met uh, Alice Cooper, and so he can connect himself to Kevin Bacon, also in three moves. Uh, we thought we could do it in two, but we couldn't. And then I've met Tim Burton, sort of. I was in the same room with Tim Burton. He talked to me, but I didn't know who he was because I'm an idiot. Uh, but uh, he, he's not, but I'd still two moves uh, two removed from Kevin Bacon. So my Kevin Bacon number is three. Uh, we have a, a gal in the fellowship whose Kevin Bacon number is two because she, her cousin went to school with Brad Pitt, who knows Kevin Bacon. And so she's, wow, might as well quit right now. Now, we're going to be talking a lot about separation as we listen to the wisdom and warnings in the book of James. Obviously, a different kind of separation. Biblical separation is the recognition that God has called believers out of the world into a personal and corporate purity in the midst of their surrounding sinful cultures. It's a term that refers to your lifestyle choices as a Christian. Having been redeemed, regenerated by Jesus, your life is to be different from that of the non-believer. Separation does not require Christians to have no contact with non-believers. Like Jesus, we should befriend the sinner without partaking of the sin. The easiest way to think about separation is the famous but accurate Christian cliche, you should be in the world but not of the world. 
James was writing to a group of Jewish believers in Jesus who had recently been forced out of Jerusalem into the surrounding Gentile world. He's going to urge them to maintain separation in those pressure-filled environments. Now, we might not be Jewish Christians who have been forced out of Jerusalem, but we are forced to wait for our heavenly home, the new Jerusalem. Everywhere we find ourselves on earth is foreign soil. And it is hostile territory, seeing that the devil is still the ruler of this world. He's the prince of the power of the air. He's the leader of malevolent principalities and powers who are seeking to overwhelm us and to destroy and kill us. We need to be urged as the world worsens to maintain biblical separation. Now, we agree that separation is biblical, but we frequently disagree over the degrees of separation. Those disagreements usually start with a question that begins with these three words, can a Christian, and then you put in whatever activity or, uh, you know, you're talking about, and we seek to make rules and lists of what Christians can and can't do, we need to guard against reducing separation into a list of do's and mostly don'ts. We are not to be or to become rules-oriented. We're in a relationship with Jesus, and our separation must flow from that. Is there something that could guide us regarding separation? Some starting point that will keep us from becoming either too lax or too legalistic. Well, I'm going to suggest two such guidelines from the starting point of the book of James from verse 1, and I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, separation is a result of you being a slave, and number two, separation is a result of you being scattered. And so let's take a look, first of all, with what we mean by being a slave. Now, I'm going to ask you to sing along with me. You seem to be in a good mood this morning. And so I want you to sing zippity doo da with me. Are you ready? You know that song, right? zippity doo da zippity a. My, oh, my, what a wonderful day. Plenty of sunshine headed my way. zippity doo da zippity a. Very good. Give yourself a hand. Do you know where that song is from? It's not from Splash Mountain, not originally. It's from the 1946 Disney film, The Song of the South. I'm guessing a lot of you may not have seen The Song of the South because it's been banned. Or has it? Actually, that's a myth to be busted. Song of the South is not officially banned. There hasn't been an official banning going on anywhere at any time. It seems that Disney took it upon themselves to withhold the movie from the public. If you've ever seen it, you can probably guess why it has engendered so much controversy. I ran across this summary. Let me read it to you. It says, The general objections lie in the depiction of African Americans within the live-action sequences of the film, such as stereotyping. Some also believe the movie depicts slavery and consequently believe that Disney tried to sugarcoat slavery. The Tar Baby sequence is especially troubling. The NAACP charged the film with giving the impression of an idyllic master-slave relationship. The History Channel recently remade Alex Haley's Roots for a new generation. Some of you are probably watching that. It depicts the type of nightmarish, oppressive inhumanity we normally think of whenever the term slave is used. Certainly not the idyllic master-slave relationship. 
Now, without dulling our sensibilities to the horrors of that kind of slavery, before we can get into verse 1, we need to understand that the slavery condoned and practiced in ancient Israel was of an entirely different nature. Israel as a nation were slaves for over 400 years in Egypt. When they were freed, God gave them laws regarding slaves that were not the same as the other nations. Slaves had rights in Israel's social system. They were not treated as non-human or part-human or as property, but as men made in the image of God. Slavery was more like an occupation in Israel. It was servanthood with rights. Slaves had economic rights, including the right to own their own slaves. And they had religious rights, such as enjoying the Sabbath rest. Some Israelites sold themselves into slavery. Others were sold to pay debts. Jewish slaves could not be held for more than six years, and they were then given a choice to leave or to stay. They could voluntarily choose to remain, and many did choose to remain because they actually were better off in their master's household. They did have an idyllic master-slave relationship. In Exodus 21, we read, If the servant plainly says, I love my master... I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or to the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl. He shall serve him forever. You might say they were all in. Get it? That's a groaner, I know, but it's all right. Now we're prepared to meet James because the first thing he says is, I'm James a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James is the English version of the Hebrew name Jacob. We'll stick with James to minimize any confusion. This James is the Lord's brother. After the virgin birth of Jesus, Joseph and Mary had four other sons that are listed in the Bible. Joseph, James, Jude, and Simon. Because of the virgin birth, Joseph was not the father of Jesus, so these would be the half-brothers of the Lord. The last three mentioned are not to be confused with those who were disciples of Jesus of the same name. Among the 12, there was a James, a Jude, and a Simon, but those were not Jesus' brothers. Jesus also had at least two half-sisters. John tells us that during the ministry of Jesus, even his brothers did not believe in him. Later, however, they became active leaders in the church. Two of them, James and Jude, wrote letters that became part of the New Testament. It would seem that James got saved when big brother Jesus made a personal post-resurrection visit to him. You read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. James was not one of the 12, but it's clear from reading the book of Acts, he was the leader of the new church, uh, the fledgling church in Jerusalem. He calls himself a bond servant. He identifies, we would say today, as a slave. There's a lot of talk today about people who identify themselves as something they're not. Identity, they say, is how you perceive yourself and what you call yourself. And so if you're a Christian, you know that there's a fight in the culture over gender identity. Uh, That's said to be one's innermost concept of self as male or female or a blend of both or neither. And proponents of gender identity argue that one's gender identity can be the same or different from the sex that's assigned to you genetically at birth. And this is where you get some of this uh, stuff going on today about uh, bathrooms and how men are allowed to use women's bathrooms because these men identify as women 
even though they're biologically and genetically male, in their heart they identify as a woman and they want to, uh, they feel embarrassed in a men's room and so they feel like they should be able to go into a woman's room. Now, while I'm on the subject, gender identity is resolved by something God said in Genesis and something Jesus reiterated in his ministry. Male and female, he created them. God is the one who assigns gender not society, not the individual. So that, that's a bad use of identity. However, James actually uses this idea of identity in a proper way. He calls himself a bondservant. Here's what I mean. He was not a bondservant. He was a free Jew. He was nobody's slave. But opening his book, he says, I am the bondservant, the bondslave of Jesus Christ. He identified as a slave spiritually. So we take this to mean that James identified with the type of slave who chose to stay with his master forever, the one who was all in. Because we spent time delineating the nature of Jewish slavery, what I'm going to say next should not shock you or offend you in context. There are amazing benefits to identifying as a slave. Now see, if I didn't tell you all that other stuff ahead of time, that would be an offensive statement. But knowing what Jewish slavery was, I can say with boldness, it's great to be a slave. And here's why. Think of it. Your master was responsible for your room and board. He was responsible to clothe you, to educate you, and to train you. He was responsible and liable for your health and your well-being and for your protection. All of this came to you free as a bondservant in your master's household. It sounds a lot like something Jesus once intimated about God when he said in Matthew, Therefore I say to you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink. Don't worry about your body, what you will put on. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? Why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. And so Jesus is sounding very much like God is the master and we are the slave and everything that we need is provided for us to the point that we don't even have to worry about it. Why do we, in fact, worry about these very things? Why does this occupy 90% of my thought? What I'm going to eat and wear and live and all these kinds of things? Well, it's because I don't identify as a bondservant. If I did, I'd know that everything pertaining to my daily life must be provided by my master. And so I would think, hey, uh, it's not up to me what I eat, drink, wear, live. God's going to have to lead and guide because I'm committed to him. And so if you're God's bondservant, here's something else. None of your endeavors can ever fail. Nothing you do can ever fail as a bondservant. Now, I've had many failures in my life, and while I'm not planning to, I'm sure I'm going to have a slew more before it's over. But those are times when I'm operating as self-employed rather than a slave. If God is leading me and I am obeying him, I can't help but succeed. 
Now, success spiritually isn't always what we think. It doesn't always look like success. It can, in fact, look like failure outwardly to the untrained eye. The example I would use in the Old Testament would be Jeremiah. He had about a 40-year ministry, no real converts, uh, always persecuted. Nobody listened to him. He was thrown into a cistern once, left to die, had to be rescued. Uh, He yet did everything that the Lord told him to do. Uh, said everything that the Lord told him to say. His message was a dark one. You're going into captivity in Babylon. And guess what happened? They went into captivity, captivity in Babylon. Well, we would say that he was a tremendously successful prophet, one of the great prophets. We wouldn't want to be him because outwardly he had a, a tough time of it. But obeying God brought him spiritual success. We also read from Exodus that being a bondservant was a personal choice and that it involved your ear. Identifying as a spiritual bondservant, that's a personal choice involving your ear, only in this case your ear has to do with hearing the word of God. While we're singing, do you remember the Donut Man song, I Like the Bible? Who remembers that? Anybody? I like the Bible. I like the Bible because I read it and I do it. I read it and I do it. No, I'm just kidding. Later in this letter, James is going to make his famous remark, be doers of the word and not hearers only. I'm a bondservant when I read it and I do it. Now, while a Jew made a one-time commitment, lifetime commitment to being a bondservant, we must identify as a bondservant over and over again. I think this is where we forget this. So if you're a Jew, it's like this is a physical commitment. I'm a bondservant. My ear's been pierced. That's it. I live in that relationship. But as a Christian, we kind of get lax in our serving and in our thinking of ourselves as bondservants. Uh, We think of ourselves as free and able to make our own decisions and go our own way and this kind of thing. We need to be reminded and we need to remind ourselves from time to time that we have decided to be voluntary slaves. Every time I'm faced with a decision regarding an attitude or an action, I can obey the word of God or I can disobey and take on life by myself. And so this is, uh, it's, it's a situation that's ongoing with us. When I choose to function as the bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, separation from the world follows from that decision. In other words, I don't decide that I don't go to movies anymore and therefore I'm a bondservant. I decide I'm a bondservant and I look at the movies I go to or if I want to go to any movies because I'm too, so busy serving the Lord and trying to please Him, I, I want to see how all of this stuff fits in to that lifestyle. And so you can't really preach against these things. You can't be the Holy Spirit for somebody else and tell them what they can and can't do. What you can say is, do you realize that you are the bondservant, the bondslave of Jesus Christ? And what is your degree of separation from the world? Because all of us need to have some degrees of separation. I need to relate to Jesus as my benevolent master, identify as his bondservant, and then I will make decisions about everything that are consistent with pleasing him, and I will find myself separated by various degrees from the surrounding sinful culture. And that brings us to the second thing, being scattered. Now, San Bernardino is my hometown. I grew up there from the age of three when we moved from back east till I was 30 years old and came here. I lived in Riverside for a couple of years. Uh, lived up in Running Springs for a short time. But San Bernardino, that's my hometown. That was the San Bernardino theme song right there. So. 
I feel totally uncomfortable in San Bernardino now when I visit. Everything changed, and I wasn't there to change with it. Everything changed, and, and I wasn't there. Last time I was down there driving around showing people the sights. <laughs> it was terrifying. I mean, I could hardly find... It's just, it's not a place I'd want to break down. Uh, you know, and, and yet I used to, you know... Used you know how it is. You feel comfortable. This is your hometown. Not anymore. You know that uncomfortable feeling you get when you're not at home? That's how we should feel all the time as Christians in our spirit, wherever we are in this world. We're not at home. We should be able to relate to the Jewish patriarch Abraham, of whom we read in Hebrews. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Uh, Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. He waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And so Abraham, uh, once the Lord got a hold of him, was never comfortable on the earth because he was always headed home. James is writing to a very unique audience. We're going to meet them at the end of verse 1. They're the 12 tribes scattered abroad. Now, the 12 tribes means the physical descendants of the Jewish patriarchs. This isn't a mystical title. It's not even metaphorical. Uh, It it is not a name for believers of all ages. He literally really is writing to Jewish Christians. Now, we see by extension, it has application to us. He's writing to Jewish Christians scattered in the world who are... you know, scattered out of Jerusalem, and we can see in that we're being scattered out in the world on our way to the new Jerusalem. So there are points of context, not that the book isn't for us, but we need to be careful. This will help us make some decisions later on in the book when he makes certain statements to know who his audience actually was. So he's writing to these Jews. We would call them Messianic Jews. They are Jews who had received Jesus Christ as their Savior and Messiah. The first Christians were all Jews. It started on the day of Pentecost when the 120 disciples gathered in the upper room, began to praise God in known languages uh, from all the the areas around them, and Jews were there on that uh, temple, in the temple for that feast, and they heard God being praised in their own language. And on that day, Peter presented the gospel, and 3,000 of those Jews were born again and became Messianic Jews, completed Jews, or like Marty Getz liked to say, Jews born anew, uh, which I like that. Not too long after that, 5,000 more were saved. And then we read, in fact, that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And so a great revival swept out, 3,000, 5,000. Every day, we don't know how many hundreds or even thousands were being added to the role in heaven. Now, from the get-go, these Messianic Jews were in conflict with the religious leaders. It wasn't long before a zealous Pharisee began to persecute them with the full support of the ruling council and chief priests. You and I know him as the Apostle Paul, but before that, he was Saul. He was there when Jews killed Stephen, the first martyr of the church age. In fact, we read in Acts chapter 8, now Saul was consenting to Stephen's death. And at that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. For Saul made havoc of the church, entering into houses and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. And so this great uh, persecution broke out, led by Saul. 
They were scattered. The word means they were dispersed like seed. It's from a Greek uh, a root word that's diaspora or diaspora, if you prefer. I don't know. I don't know Greek. You, you figured out after 30 years, I don't know anything about Greek, right? It's all Greek to me, means a lot to me. So, so could, let's, say, let's say it's the diaspora, which is why you'll sometimes hear this group referred to as the diaspora. It means Jews that are scattered outside of Jerusalem. In Acts, we see they went to Judea and Samaria, but it wasn't long before they had to go further. By Acts chapter 9, they were in Syria because Saul had to get permission to go and hunt them down there. It was on that trip that Saul was converted in a personal encounter with the risen Lord Jesus Christ and uh, became the individual that we know better as Paul. Now, James is writing to these Messianic Jews scattered abroad and to any saved Jews anywhere in Gentile territory. He was writing somewhere around 45 to 50 AD, making this the very first book of the New Testament. Before any of the Gospels were written, before any other book was written, this book was in circulation. One commentator noted concerning the dispersed Jews, and he said... Through their contacts with other people, the Jews of the dispersion generally had a larger outlook on life and a greater openness to new ideas. That translates into they were susceptible to the influence of the world around them. I think we see that in the church today. Without getting legalistic, I think it would be easy to prove that the church has become desensitized over the past 50 years. Uh, And... um, Things that were absolutely, you know, bedrock principles for the church. We've kind of gotten a little bit lax on them. And, and, because, and you know why? Because we're in the world and the world is pounding us every single day relentlessly. And the world is a lot worse than it was 50 years ago. It's a lot worse than it was 10 years ago. It was a lot worse than it is a year ago. We're, we're getting into immorality on an exponential level in terms of what's happening in the world. I'm not saying the church is failing. It, you know, the church is Jesus' darling. Were it not for the church in the world, can you imagine what the world would be like? The Bible says that one day the church will be removed in the rapture, and that's the only thing restraining evil. So for all of the desensitization that maybe has gone on, we are restraining the evil that is going to befall this world. And so it's not a message of failure, but it's a recognition that we're under attack and all of us have been beat up in different areas of our life from time to time, uh, have backslidden from time to time, have had to recommit ourselves, uh, maybe our entire walk, maybe just parts of our walk. And this is what James is talking about. He's writing to these Jews and saying, hey, you're not in Jerusalem anymore. There's, you're, you're lacking some of that good, solid peer pressure. You're out in the world. You're a minority. And the world is out to destroy you. Don't forget it. And he's going to go through a series of exhortations to remind us of that. He even uses a special word, a word that summarizes his warning. We're going to find the word in uh, two places in this letter and nowhere else in all of the New Testament. It's a special word that James uses. It's the word double-minded. It literally means two-spirited. It describes a person who vacillates between the world and the Lord. And he's going to tell us not to be lured away and drawn off by the things of the surrounding culture, but to maintain separation. If you're familiar with the Christian classic uh, Pilgrim's Progress, Progress by John Bunyan, you might recall a character in there by the name of Mr. Facing Both Ways. 
I love the characters and, you know, uh, but this is Mr. Facing Both Ways, and that's a good picture of what James is talking about. He says, you can't be longing for the Lord and longing for the world at the same time. It's like facing both ways. You need to face one way or the other. And that's why some of his rebukes are so stinging. In the book, he'll say, you adulterers and adulteresses. It's like, wow, what does that mean? It means I'm facing the world, uh, and the world has become an idol to me, things in the world, and I'm not facing Jesus anymore because I can't have two masters. And so his rebukes come uh, as a way of reminding us of biblical separation. James wasn't simply acknowledging they were dispersed. They were to realize, no matter how far from Jerusalem they were, that they were the 12 tribes. In other words, they had a unique identity. They might be in Damascus, Syria, but they were spiritually speaking in Israel. We are in Hanford, but listen to where we are spiritually. This is Paul's writing in Ephesians. He says, God has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Jesus Christ. And so there's a sense in which, though, even though we're sitting in this auditorium or over in the fellowship hall, God says, yeah, but spiritually you're seated in heaven with me. I can't improve on what William McDonald says about this. He says, by our union with Jesus, we are seen as already delivered from this present evil world and seated with him in glory. This is how God sees us. If we appropriate it by faith, it will change the character of our lives. We will no longer be earthbound, occupied with trivial and transient things. We will seek those things which are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And so no matter how scattered from heaven you seem to be, you're to operate as if you were already seated in heaven with Jesus. This reminding yourself you are scattered and a stranger on the earth, again, will result in you maintaining separation because you see your true identity. I used to tell the kids when they leave the house, I say, I say hey, remember who you are uh, and who you want to be and your identity in Christ. And, and so I think you get the idea. I can't give rules and regulations because those are going to be all over the map and those don't help me to be separated. But if I remember that I'm scattered in a wicked world that's trying to kill me and that I have an identity seated with Christ in heaven, I'm going to make decisions that are consistent with that position. And it will affect all the can a Christian, et cetera, et cetera, questions, but it will answer them from a relationship point of view, not a rules point of view. And I don't need to tell you that the church has taken hits over the years on being rules-oriented. Most non-Christians think that being a Christian is, is that you can't do most everything. And that if you just quit doing everything, and that's why people, when you invite them to church and they're seeking the Lord, they think they have to clean up their lives before they can come because they think of Christianity as something that's rules-oriented and that they have to get better and get good. They have to quit going to the movies. They have to quit smoking. They have to quit drinking. They have to quit driving over the speed limit. They have to quit doing all these things before they can come into a church and be ready to meet God. And we would say, no, you need to get into church because you're doing all those things and let the Lord change your heart. You remember if you got saved later in life? You didn't, you didn't get saved and say, now let me create a list of things I can't do anymore. You just didn't do things anymore. You didn't have any desire to do them. It's like, oh, I used to do this. Now I don't want to do that anymore. What happened? The Holy Spirit came and lived inside of you. And then what happens? You walk with the Lord for a while. 
And you grow in the Lord, and you grow in knowledge, and you grow in wisdom, and you also get hammered by the world. And the next thing you know, you're slipping back into the world in certain areas. And uh, it happens to all of us. And that's why James is going to be good for us. He's going to set baseline for us so that we can look at that and say, oh, that's a basic Christian. He's writing to Messianic Jews, but it's also a basic Christian baseline. How am I doing? Am I above the baseline or below that baseline when it comes to the world being an idol for me, for example, in these various things? And so it's not just a series of stinging rebukes that you know, we have to pull the arrows out uh, at, you know, at, at lunch over uh, a hamburger or something. It, it's, it's a baseline. I work with, uh, as a chaplain with policemen and firefighters, and I frequently hear this term, perishable skills. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Perishable skills are skills that depreciate in effectiveness over time if they're not practiced. And so uh, police and firefighters especially should have a lot of training because they're especially physical skills, self-defense skills and shooting and all of these kinds of things, firefighting. If you're not practicing these things, when you need them, you'll be rusty, you will have forgotten them, and you won't be able to react properly. And so there are perishable skills. Instead of thinking of the bold statements that James make in this letter as stinging rebukes, I want to see them as a spiritual trainer encouraging us to practice spiritual separation because they are perishable skills that are being undermined as we walk uh, out in the world. Uh, and so we're, we're in a battle all the time. We don't always know that. We don't always sense that. And our skills deteriorate if we're not practicing them. We need to know what some of those skills are, where we should be on that uh, skill level so that we're ready, especially in these last of the last days when we want to urge our family and friends to come to know the Lord before it's too late.